Aloha, and welcome to the show. The 692nd Podcast is a platform for developing and connecting with our airmen across the island and those now serving on the mainland. Tune in for episodes where we talk all things leadership and personal development while getting a glimpse into the lives of the people moving our missions forward. I'm your host, Master and Derek Addison, and this is the 692nd Podcast. Welcome Knights, Tigers, Hawks, Warriors, and Krakens to this interview with the Millennial Money Woman. Fiona first started diving into the realm of personal finance at a young age and has been on a mission to ensure that young adults have the same tools and information she has gained from her personal experience and rigorous studies to become debt-free and attain financial independence. Enjoy the show. So welcome. This is Master Sergeant Derek Addison, and I want to talk to you today about financial literacy. Our airmen have an amazing ability to save money and set themselves up for financial success, with some of our members already attaining millionaire status through the thrift savings plan, stock market, and other financial endeavors. Today, I'm interviewing the millennial money woman, aka Fiona. She has quite an amazing achievement record, purchased her first house at 23 years old, co-founded a community for nonprofit for personal financial literacy, and is also debt-free, minus her mortgage, of course, and lives in Miami, Florida. Fiona, can you give us a little bit about what you do and and, uh, how you got to where you are? Definitely, Derek. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for having me on the show. It's truly an honor to be here, and I really hope your audience can get some value of our conversation um, so yeah, definitely. I am, as you, as you already said, so super into financial planning. I really started my passion about finance when I was probably a preteen or an early teenager. And, you know, I always loved anything that had to do with money. Like I, I loved making money, right? Who doesn't? And I also knew how to spend money and who doesn't either, right? Everyone knows how to spend money, Absolutely. but I didn't exactly know what Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but I didn't exactly know what happens in between that stage. Right. Like, what do you do with the money that you actually earned? What happens to it? How do you make it grow or how do you invest that money? And because I was kind of unfamiliar with that kind of gray area, if you will, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper and peel the layers of the onion, if you will. And so I ended up studying financial planning. And I attained my certified financial planner degree, which is the equivalent to a financial ninja. And uh, also got my master's of science in personal financial planning. And that was really just because I wanted to really focus on money. And I wanted to truly understand what happens to your money and how can you use your money as a tool to make you more money in the end. And having known and having gone through some of the rigorous coursework that goes along with getting these certificates, I, you know, ended up working as a financial planner and co-founded this local nonprofit that you just spoke about. And that's really where I was exposed to the need, the true need to know a little bit more about financial literacy, because, you know, I interviewed a lot of young professionals, extremely intelligent across a plethora of different industries from, you know, real estate to finance, to education, to the nonprofit, you name it. But there was one thing that was in common with all of them. And that was that they wanted to learn more about 
finance, financial literacy, but just didn't know exactly where to start because there is, you know, so much noise in the internet nowadays, and we don't know which resource is correct and which one is not accurate. And that was kind of my goal uh, by founding the Millennial Money Woman, my website, to provide an accurate resource and hopefully break down some of the more complex financial topics for your audience and those who are interested in financial literacy. Yeah, awesome. I was looking through your your Instagram and all the and all the content that you post in your blog and I realized that I don't know, I really don't understand any of the stuff that you talked about. Obviously, you broke it down to where uh, even a layman like me can understand, so it's great and I will definitely make sure that all of your resources are available to the entire audience. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and get into some questions. I would like to know maybe what are some specific tips that you normally provide to young adults, maybe roughly ages 18 to 26, regarding spending habits and maybe about how much of a savings they should probably be putting away if possible. That's a great question. And I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think so many people should really start thinking about savings and spending habits, especially from a young age. And, you know, I, I think that, first of all, the biggest and most important piece of advice that I hope to walk away with today from our conversation is that young people, right, ages 18 to 26, have one thing on their side that most others don't, and that is time. Time is one of our most limited resources. And when you're young, that's when you really should use time, especially as it relates to investing. And that's gonna be my first piece of advice. Invest as early as you can. Even you know if you're 16 years old and you have a job, take $5 from that job and start investing it. You're 26 and you have an extra 100 bucks lying around. Don't spend it on something, go ahead and invest it. Um, investing is the most important thing. And I can go into a couple of calculations later on, um, but time really does help because once you invest a little bit into the stock market, that investment compounds, which means it grows and grows and grows. And then, you know, three, four decades from now, you'll really see the impact of that investment. You won't see it tomorrow and you won't see it next year, but in 30 years from now, you will see the difference of the compounding interest. But let's get back to your question about spending habits and savings habits. So there are a couple budgeting rules of thumb that I really appreciate and that I go by and, and hope to you know, help others with. So these budgeting rules of thumb, I'm going to uh, give four. And they're actually also recommended by the, the CFP board, which is essentially the governing body for all CFPs, certified financial planners, which is one of my designations. So the four budgeting rules of thumb, the first one, is about how much house or apartment is big enough for me. And monthly housing debt or your regular payments toward housing should be less than 28% of your gross monthly income. So keep in mind, this is kind of a rule of thumb, right? Every situation is different, but you should hopefully kind of be flexible and adapt your lifestyle to these rules of thumb. So with that in mind, less than 28% of gross monthly income. Just to go over what gross is, Gross means literally what you get on your paycheck before taxes are taken out, before your TSP contributions are taken out, et cetera. Right. So that's the big number that you actually get per month. So you want to get less than 28% toward monthly housing debt. The next rule of thumb has to do with total monthly consumer debt. So what that means is any type of short-term loan, such as credit card debt, 
a line of credit, potentially cash advances, stuff like that. So typically within a year of paying that off. So your total monthly consumer debt should be less than 20% of your net monthly income. And again, net means after your TSP contributions are taken out. So that's smaller number on your pay stub. Yeah. The third rule of thumb is about total monthly debt payments. And that includes literally everything, right? So student debt, housing debt, credit card payments, all of your debt combined should be about less than 36% of your gross monthly income. And now the question is, okay, we talked about these spending habits, how much you should roughly budget to spend. Now what about saving? What are, what are you going to do for savings and specifically your retirement, your investments, contributions? So typically rules of thumb say about 10 to 15% is a good number to save of your monthly gross income. What I actually say is I prefer if you save and invest over 30% of your monthly gross income. And the reason why my suggestion is almost double of the average suggestion out there is because in my mind, if your goal, let's say, is to be financially free, so in other words, you don't have to worry about going paycheck to paycheck, for example, you wanna do something that's above average, right? You're not gonna be what the regular average person is doing. You wanna be above average. And in order to be above average, you gotta sometimes do things that the average person doesn't. In this case, it might be making a few more sacrifices up front. So instead of going out to a restaurant four times a week, you'll go out three times a week. And that day that you didn't go out, you save those 20 bucks or 40 bucks and move that to your investment fund. And again, long-term, that is going to make such a significant difference in your financial picture. Short-term, you probably won't see a difference. But 30, 40 years down the road, it will make a very large impact. So that's why I go back to that 30% plus rule, if that is possible currently in your financial situation. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you when you say the average person is should be saving 10 to 15%. However, the average person is not financially free, especially in our economy right now. Mm-hmm. The average person is not a millionaire. Or if you know if that is their goal, the average person can't really deal with, let's say, a $5,000 bill that just gets dropped on them today. The average American, let's say, can't do that right now. So it makes sense to go above and beyond or even double what that average person is being recommended to do. So what are some of the concerns that are maybe the biggest concerns that you've seen with young adults when I guess they're preparing for their like financial literacy or just pretty much getting them set up on a financial path? What are those biggest obstacles maybe that that, uh, the younger generation or maybe young adults kind of experience? That's a great question. Uh, There are, I think there are several obstacles. One, obviously being student loan debt. Um, That's a very huge obstacle. Two, and I'll go into further depth on that later on. So student loan debt, I think social peer pressure is a big one too. Um, And then the third one is dealing with emergency or unexpected expenses and ultimately credit card debt. So let me go into a little bit further depth into those four categories. So first of all, student loan debt. Student loan debt, I mean, is, I think it's $1.56 trillion at the current moment in our American economy. And although I know, you know, people that might not have student loan debt, they're extremely fortunate, very, very fortunate. Either they made the right career moves, right? Like with the military, uh, or they 
were able to just avoid college altogether and kind of get out of that student loan debt. Another case is not so much. I mean, I have a very close friend of mine. She is a photography major and exited college with over $120,000 of debt with really no job prospects, especially in this economy. So I think, you know, in, in a lot of cases, student loan debt can really saddle down a lot of decisions for recently graduating college students. You know, families are being formed much later than they were before uh, student loan debt became such a crisis. Housing, lots of houses are not being sold to millennials anymore or recent college graduates because they just can't. A lot of college graduates are moving back with their parents to live rent free or at least at a decreased rate because they're unable to afford rent due to the student loan debt. So that's a very huge factor. And I think that has also lowered kind of the risk tolerance that a lot of students or young adults have coming out of college. They're scared of investing in the stock market because they cannot afford to lose money. And I appreciate that. I understand that because I have a lot of close people to me that are in that same situation. But at the same time, I think some students, they lack the, they lack the foresight, right? They, they can't look long-term. And long-term, even if they invest just $5 of whatever they earn, it will help them down the road. So definitely student debt is one thing that I talk about and kind of help in, implement in the budget to pay down systematically, but at the same time, not completely forego other financial goals that they might have down the road. The second thing is social peer pressure. And this is kind of an interesting one, but I think it is pretty common with, you know, the younger crowd. So for example, if you are in your mid twenties, mid thirties, and you established a budget, right? And you want to follow this budget because you know, in five years from now, you want to have a house. You need to have a budget for a down payment for the house or whatever your goal is. You need to stay within the limits of your budget, right? You can't spend over specific categories. But nowadays, well, at least pre-COVID times, a lot of times your friends might want to go out, you know, you might have a lot of birthday parties, weddings to go to, et cetera. And that can rack up a lot of expenses. Um, you know, I mean, I think I, I had a good friend of mine. She went to five weddings in one year and probably spent over 3000 bucks that should have gone toward credit card debt, for example. So I think there's kind of a limit of knowing when to say no even if your friends might, you know, call you jokingly a Debbie Downer or whatever. But there has to be a point where you say, you know, you, you just can't go out and keep doing these things because your budget won't allow you to. And I, I was thinking about this earlier, too. And I think a lot of times, actually, the media puts down the fact that you're trying to keep, you know, stick within a budget. And instead, I think the media should also, like, focus on the positives of staying on a budget even in a social circle. So the peer pressure really shouldn't be there. But I think there is a lot of peer pressure nowadays, you know, to go out, be with your friends, go to restaurants, bars, etc. So that's another thing that I think is very difficult nowadays, maybe pre-COVID, not anymore now. <laughs> right. But um, the next things are extremely important. And these are these have to do with an emergency savings fund and credit card debt. And it's very difficult for millennials, I think, specifically to kind of balance, you know, their current lifestyle with focusing on an emergency savings fund, for example. And I want to bring this back to a point that you, you actually said earlier, Derek, and that was regarding emergency savings. You know, 30% of American people have no emergency savings. And even more so, 78% of Americans, they live paycheck to paycheck. 
right? Every, every month they're worried, can they make ends meet? And I personally would not want to live like that because I wouldn't be able to sleep, right? I'd always be worried. Oh my goodness. What if I have an unexpected expense? What do I do then? Um, and moreover, 57% of Americans, they cannot cover a $500 bill in emergency expenses, so I think one of the first things that young professionals, right, younger Americans tend to struggle with is building up an emergency savings account. And what that means is something liquid, like a cash account that you only use for unexpected expenses, like a flat tire, for example, or unexpected vet bills. And the typical rule of thumb is to have about three to six months worth of your monthly living expenses stashed in this emergency savings fund. Um, it can also help you, you know, in case you are let go, especially during, you know, the COVID pandemic crisis. This is a fund that is there to help you during the rough times, a rainy day fund. And a lot of millennials and young people have trouble kind of setting that up and they don't budget that in into their quote unquote expenses. So that's one thing I help you know, younger people focus on is to start this healthy habit of budgeting in an expense category per month to, you know, save a hundred bucks toward their emergency savings fund, 200 bucks every month. And once that emergency savings fund is full to our three to six month rule, roughly, we stop moving money into this emergency savings fund and we go toward the investing route. Yeah, that makes sense. It, you know, it's so helpful because I think a lot of it also has to do with an emotional aspect. You can actually sleep at night knowing, you know, if I have something happen to my car tomorrow, I don't need to resort to debt financing. I don't need to swipe my credit card and rack up another thousand bucks on, of credit card debt. It's much more peace of mind in that aspect. And the fourth aspect is just credit card debt. And I think a lot of younger folks, unfortunately, we're not really taught about credit cards and the pleasure and also the plights that come along with credit cards. On one hand, it's wonderful using just a simple piece of plastic, swiping it and getting whatever you want to get. But on the other hand, it's also, it can be pretty detrimental to someone's financial issues because as you rack up more credit card debt, you also rack up a higher interest rate, right? Like you, you can get up to 24% of interest rate on a credit card debt. Compare that to the return on investment you can get in the stock market if you invest your money. That's just 7%. So a lot of people ask me, what should I do? Should I invest my money in the stock market or should I pay off my credit card debt? So the way I explain it is, okay, in the stock market, you can get an average of a 7% return versus on credit cards. If you pay off your credit card debt, you would basically be paying yourself back that 24% interest rate, right? Like that's basically a return on investment because you're chopping up that interest rate. You're no longer having to pay that, whatever the credit card companies charge. So I always say, number one thing, get rid of that credit card debt. Once you're done with that, then move on to the investments. But yeah, you know, it's, it's so tough nowadays because there's so many different factors that really impact our financial picture from student loans to social peer pressure to just establishing an emergency savings fund to paying off credit card debt. It's, it's very difficult. And it, I think one of the first things that you have to do is just start prioritizing, right? Like, what do you want to get away first? What do you want to cross off your list first and then move on to the second step? So prioritization is key in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the the three to six months of, of the emergency budgeting, I'm under the assumption that a majority of our 
airmen or our young professionals don't have a budget, so they probably don't know how much they need for that three to six months emergency fund. So obviously, you know, we have financial planners and things like that, and all of our airmen have access to these people. They are 100% free, and they are just here for the airmen as, as well as the other service members that are, you know, assigned to the base. So they have these financial planners available, and we have finance specialists in the squadron that can help them. But I don't believe that those resources are as utilized as maybe they should. So it's difficult for me to think that an airman will even know how much that three to six month, maybe lifestyle, what they need for those three to six months, that emergency fund. I'll be honest with you, I don't even know how much I would need with three kids and a wife. And obviously because of COVID, my wife is no longer working because our kids are at home doing virtual schooling, which is amazing. Not very, but still. But I don't I don't even know how much I would need for the three to six months emergency fund. I have plenty of money in a savings and another checking account that is that that liquid account that you mentioned earlier. So I know that we are fine, but my wife is much better with money than I am, hence the reason I don't understand any of this. <laughs> but uh, but she is obviously, she's the reason why I have a savings account, because I, I don't really care about money too much. Uh, well, I never did. Let's, let's go with that. I didn't care about money as a young adult because I knew that I had a steady paycheck. I knew that I was going to get paid every 1st and 15th of the month, and I made plenty of money because I was in a dorm room, so I didn't have bills. I had a a monthly cell phone bill, which was like $10 a month in Korea. It's really cheap. And that was it. Everything else was beer money or whatever else I wanted to save. And obviously I didn't save as much as I probably should have, but thankfully I had, well, I met my wife or we got back together and she got me on the right path. But you talked about credit card debt as well. Prior to the call that I had a friend at our technical training school in Monterey, California, she went down to a local car dealership, and this car dealership, I guess people, some people knew that they were, they kind of used predatory tactics whenever they had, you know, a brand new airman or a brand new soldier, sailor, marine, whatever, because uh, it was a joint base. They had kind of a, a rule, like whenever a brand new person showed up and you knew that they didn't have any credit, they didn't have any information about how to buy a car or any of that stuff. They didn't know what, you know, the annual percentage rates, they didn't know what interest rates were, things like that. And she was 19 years old at the, at the time. She had zero credit because she didn't, again, like you said, a lot of us aren't taught about how to build credit and things like that. So she had zero credit and she was paying $600 a month for a $15,000 vehicle because they wouldn't let her go anything above a 37-month loan. And it was a 27% interest rate. It was just, it was ridiculous. And thankfully, we had another guy that was at our at our base who was from Fresno and knew, and he used to work at a, at a used car dealership. So he knew like some of the rules and maybe some of the laws. And he went down there with her and kind of straightened it out, I guess, uh, to where she didn't have a $600 bill. But she had that for almost an entire year before she even told someone. You know, we asked her, like, why can't, why don't you, why can't you go to Big Sur, you know, for the weekend? She's like, I can't spend the money. It's like, like, how much, what are you paying for? You know, you're, you, she have a, she has a Chevy Cavalier, Chevy Cobalt or whatever one of those, you know, so it wasn't like, she wasn't driving a Mercedes, so we sh- we were kind of confused as to why that social peer pressure, right? Why she couldn't go out and just do things with us, uh, and then it da- you know, and she let us know that her 
card payment was six hundred dollars, and we all freaked out. Where I was like, no, that's not that. I, that can't be that can't be legal. So, but anyway, I guess all of that rant. The question is, what are some simple ways to boost credit scores, or even just establish credit so that the brand new airmen who are just coming in, who maybe have never had a credit card or anything like that in their name, their cell phone bill and everything, their insurance, car payments were all maybe on their on their parents' name. What are some of those simple steps that they can just use to start building that? Yeah, that's a great question, Derek. I mean, first of all, that sounds like white collar crime. I mean, that is a ridiculous interest rate for a car. I mean, 27%. I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, but definitely. So there are several ways to build credit, even if you have none. And I'll name three ways. So to summarize, the three ways are A, you can become an authorized user. B, you can establish spending history through just getting a regular store credit card first. And the last way is considering opening an account that's either through self or kickoff. And I'll go into depth on that. But I do want to explain that before I start, payment history actually makes up about 35% of your credit score. So clearly payment history is extremely important to having and maintaining a fairly high credit score. So like you said, obviously most incoming airmen, they really don't have a high credit score or zero or none at all because they haven't had time to build their credit um, especially at age 19, which I completely understand. So the first way to actually build credit and kind of get out there into the credit bureau uh, crediting agency names is by becoming an authorized user. And what that is, is, you know, an authorized user is someone who is allowed to use someone else's credit card. And the person who owns the credit account is actually called the primary card holder. So for example, let's say, you have a father, right, or a mother, and they have pretty good credit, right? They pay their credit card bills every single month, and you trust them and they trust you. Well, this is a great time to ask maybe your parents or another trusted person who's really good with their credit card payments to see if they would feel comfortable adding you as an authorized user on their credit account. What that means is there, the primary cardholder's credit score will not be impacted right? They, they won't be impacted by the way you spend money. However, you being the authorized user would be able to build your credit. If the person, the primary credit card holder continues to pay their bills on time and is a responsible credit card holder. So this is a fantastic way to really establish yourself with the bureau crediting agencies and to show that you exist, first of all, in the credit card world, and B, that you do have, and you're establishing basically your payment history. Although you might not be paying the bills, the primary credit card holder will be paying the bills, but your name is still attached to that credit card. So this is a fantastic way to get out there to uh, build your credit payment history, even if you make like $10 payments on this credit card, right? I mean, I think this is one of the primary ways you can get out there, especially if you have parents or a trusted mentor or a trusted friend who can add you on their credit card as an authorized user. However, just beware if that primary credit card holder misses bill payments or maybe doesn't exactly do something well with their credit card, right? Like spends too much or goes beyond the credit limit. That could impact your credit score and your credit history for the worse. 
So it can only help your credit score if your primary credit card holder does the right things by paying the bills on time. But it could also hurt you if the primary credit card holder does not pay their bills on time. So that's the first way. The second way that you could build credit is actually just by applying to a regular store credit card. Um, so for example, I think, you know, there's Macy's, there's I'm sure Walmart. Yeah, you know, I don't know all the many stores out there that offer store credit cards, but you can basically apply to these for a small limit, maybe a hundred bucks, 200 bucks or so, and build your credit payment history that way. So once again, we're tr what I'm trying to do is help people start their payment history. Because again, that makes up 30 over a third, basically, of your credit score. The rest is mainly about paying bills on time and a bunch of other factors that go into the algorithm to developing your credit score. But payment history is very, very important. So by opening that store credit card and by literally putting $10 or $20 every month on that, and then obviously paying off the 10 or 20 bucks that you put onto your store credit card, that is going to really help establish that payment history. Um, it might not help as much as being an authorized user, but it will still help if being an authorized user is not an option for you. And then the third option is considering opening an account through either this application called Self or a similar application called Kickoff. And this is kind of what these two applications are. So Basically, you're applying for a loan. The loan is $600 uh, minimum up to $1,800. Uh, so it's, it's not a large loan. But you're basically applying for a loan. That's your own money, right? So let me go into this. So you're applying for a loan. You don't have to pay anything up front. You, the loan amount is deposited into a certificate of deposit or a CD with a partner bank through one of these two companies, Self or Kickoff. And you basically are responsible for making regular payments over the life of the loan. And the life of the loan is typically one to two years. And these monthly payments are about $25 per month. So you're basically paying yourself. So you're making these $25 payments of, for this loan. And after all the payments are made, you get access to the $600 loan or the $1,800 loan. So basically the money is yours again. However, what this does, it might sound like, why would you be doing this in the first place? The reason why is because, again, it establishes your credit payment history, and that is so important. Moreover, the payment history is reported to all three credit bureau agencies. So all the three credit bureau agencies, the ones that actually determine your credit score, they then see, oh, this person is reliable. This person was able to make a $25 loan payment for one year or for two years, however long this loan is. So uh, self, I think, is available in 50 states. Kickoff is a little bit more limited. That's available in about 41 states. But the point is, these two programs, aside from like a $15 administration fee, uh, roughly, don't quote me on that, but it's about 15 bucks for administration, they're basically free. And it's just you, again, establishing that credit payment history by paying yourself a loan, essentially. That's how it works. Is it the most effective? I don't know if it's the most effective, but it's definitely one of those strategies out there for people that do not have a credit score or people that are potentially foreign, right? They come into the country, they have literally no spending history. This is how they start. And especially if they don't have any upfront money to actually start paying off a credit card uh, loan, 
this is how they could start by going through self or kickoff. So yeah, th those are the three best strategies really to start building your credit if you have none or to rebuild your credit in case you know, your credit score has plummeted over the years for whatever reason. These are great, by the way. I'm curious about the authorized user is, or even maybe the store credit card at first. Is there an age restriction or a minimum age that you have to be for the authorized user? Yes, there is. For authorized users, it's typically 18 years old. So it depends on the credit card company, but I would say 98% of the time, that's going to be 18 years old. That's horrible. I've got an 11-year-old, but I want her to... Oh. I know. <laughs> I want to start building that credit because you are correct. You're absolutely 100% correct when it comes to the payment history. So I have a Capital One credit card that I don't really want to have anymore, but because I've had that for so long, I, I mean, that's what got me keeping that up to date for as long as I've had that, almost over 20 years now. And that just solidified me getting higher and higher into the into the score range, you know, of, you know, busting 700 then into 800. And then obviously whenever I bought a house that skyrocketed up. So that's the only reason why I keep that Capital One is because I've had it for so long. And I know if I if I close that one, my credit history, the payment history is going to drop by like half. So I can't do that now. Yeah. I like the self or kickoff the loan. Uh, I'm assuming that there's probably an 18 year old minimum for that as well. Yes, there is. Yep. And, and just to tack on to, you know, for an authorized user, assuming you are 18, most of the time, or just getting a regular store credit card, there may be times where some stores, they might either require a proof of income for that 18 year old or a potential co-signer. So again, that comes back down to having a parent that's willing uh, and able to do so, or just a trusted friend or mentor that can co-sign but yes it, typically it is 18 and that's just because they're no longer a minor yeah so on your blog you talk about the dollar cost averaging strategy and how to use that to become a millionaire can you talk about what that is and who would likely benefit the most out of it yes definitely so i i love how you went right to that piece because that is for me personally my favorite piece i'm here for you <laughs> yeah thank you derek <laughs> So dollar cost averaging, to put that in layman's terms, it's basically taking a certain amount of money every single month, every day, every week, whatever it is, and you invest it into a specific type of fund. So every single day, week, month, year, et cetera, you continue to invest it consistently. That's the whole point of dollar cost averaging. So kind of like the name says, you average, so instead of taking it, let's say you get a $1,000 bonus for the holidays. Instead of taking that $1,000 bonus and literally just dumping it into one investment and being done with it, for dollar cost averaging, you're going to be splitting apart that bonus, for example, into 10 payments. So you will take 100 bucks every, let's say, week, and you're going to invest 100 bucks over 10 weeks into the stock market. And if you're asking yourself, why would I do that instead of just dumping 1000 bucks into the stock market? The answer is it has to do with diversification and especially lowering your risk, your risk to exposure and a potential bad or, in, in this case, a really high or expensive stock market. And let me go into that. Basically, if you dump a thousand bucks into the stock market and it's at all time highs, you're basically gonna get less for your money, right? Because it's super, super expensive. But if the stock market is at all time lows, you're gonna be getting more because basically the stocks, they're on sale, right? So you can buy more for your money. But 
but you really don't know when is the high and when is the low. No one does. We do not have crystal balls, unfortunately. <laughs> so what we do in this case to kind of mitigate your risk is by splitting apart the payments, right? So you do a hundred bucks every single week. So over time, it's becoming an average of whatever the price of the stock market is or the price of the shares that you purchase. That's why it's called dollar cost averaging. You're averaging in your money over a specific period of time. And as it relates to your question, when is the best time to start investing? My answer would be yesterday. <laughs> like <laughs> you would just want to start investing as early as possible. And it doesn't matter how old, how young you are, the earlier is always, always better. And the reason why, again, it comes down to that concept of time because you're allowing yourself to let your investments grow over time. And that's really the point of dollar cost averaging too. So as you continue to invest your money, and to be very honest, dollar cost averaging would mean until you retire, right? So basically every single month, let's say, if that's your frequency monthly, you invest every single month into the stock market until you retire. If that's 65, if that's 70, if that's 80, whatever it is. But the point is you're consistent with your investments. And it doesn't matter if the stock market is having a very bad day, like in March of 2020, right? When the stocks plummeted, you continue with your plan. And that is really the most important thing to being successful in the stock market. That's just sticking to your plan. And a lot of people actually find difficulty with that. And I understand them because obviously, you know, you spend this time, you spend energy, you, you sweat and toil over this money to it's your money, your hard earned money. Why would you want to see it, you know, drop in value in the stock market, like in March of 2020 or in March of 2009, right? In the great recession, the, the, the bottom point in 2009. And the answer is yes, of course, it'll feel like you would just want to pull your money out of the stock market at the lowest times. But in reality, you want to sell high, buy low. The shares, they're on sale when it is super low, when the stock market plummets. That's when you can buy more shares. That's when I would dump in more money, actually, at the lows. So, however, regardless of that, you want to stay consistent with your investing strategy. And I ran a couple of calculations, and I, I use a 7% return in the stock market because uh, over the last 50 years, the S&P 500, it's returned 7%. So I, I think it's safe to say, you know, let's just use 7% for a pretty average return. And I ran three different scenarios. One being you invest at age 25 for 40 years. Two being you invest at age 35 for 30 years. And three being you invest at age 45 for 20 years. So all of these ages, they all result to age 65, right? That's when you stop investing. Yep. I just used age 65 because that's, right, that's basically retirement. So I thought it was really interesting. All of these ages, they'll get you to a million, my calculations. But what's interesting is the amount that you have to contribute to your investment account to get to that million dollar. So the deposit frequency or the investment frequency will be monthly in this scenario. So if you start at 25 years old, and you consistently invest every single month $400, $400 every month, you will be a millionaire at age 65. If you wait 10 years and you start investing at age 35 in the stock market consistently every single month for 30 years until age 65, you're going to need to bring in $850 every month. So again, that's double, right? $400 per month at age 25. At age 35, it's going to be 850 bucks to be a millionaire at 65. 
Now let's say you start investing at age 45 and you only have a 20-year time frame, a 20-year period to make your investments grow. That's going to be $2,000 a month to make sure you become a millionaire by age 65. So as you can see, right, these just back of the hand calculations, they really indicate that time is so essential to help your money grow. And that's all thanks to compounding interest. And what that means is as you keep your money invested in the stock market, your money earns interest and the interest earned will earn interest. So it's going to be like a hockey stick or a hockey puck look basically right in the beginning, the first 10, 20 years you're going to see the line only really small take off. Like it's not really even going to take off. But then the last 30 or 40 years, you're going to see just a huge inclination in the amount of your portfolio or in the amount and the value of your investments. And you compare the increase of the value of your portfolio is mainly due to just compounding interest. That's it. Because the interest keeps compounding and growing and growing and growing. And I think that's, as you know, I interviewed and talked to a lot of multimillionaire clients, that's one of the reasons why they are multimillionaires. And that is because they started investing early and they continued with their investing strategy. And they also realized that their money is just a tool, right? They're not afraid of losing money during a specific period of time because they know that their money is a tool to help them earn more money down the road. So... A lot of wealthy individuals that I've helped financially, they have a long-term mindset. They do not maintain a short-term mindset. So if the stock market, for example, plummets again, right? Like let's say in the next few weeks, the stock market plummets, boom, down. Those wealthy individuals, they basically close their eyes. They know that they're invested for another 10 years. They don't care what happens now. And they weather it out, right? They continue their investing strategy. And in 10 years from now, they're not even going to remember three weeks from now, four weeks from now, a month from now. They don't care. They don't remember it because they're focused on the long-term goals. And I think that is, that's really one of the most important things I, I hope to leave behind with your audience too, is as you, you know, really develop a financial plan and an investment strategy, like dollar cost averaging, the goal here is to be long-term right? You want to have a long-term mindset. So even if you see your value, the value of your investments drop by $10,000, for example, you want to look ahead 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you're not even going to remember today in three decades. That's the most important thing, basically consistency as well as a long-term mindset. I remember when I first got to DLI, the, the Defense Language Institute, which is the technical school that I went to in Monterey, California to learn Korean, when I went there, we didn't really have a finance section on the base. Uh, the Air Force element had a, it's known as a SPA or something to that effect. It's a satellite personnel activity or whatever. I don't know. There was no finance office there. So all of the financial advice and things like that, the things that we were supposed to be briefed on, were done by our military training leaders who are not financial specialists. We had one that was a photographer. He was combat camera we had one that was a maintainer for F-16s, so not in the best position to really discuss financial matters. And when they explained to me what the thrift savings plan was, at the end of it, I understood that this was my new retirement, and if I did 20 years and I put all my money into the thrift savings plan, I would have that at the end. But if the stock market crashed, I would lose my entire retirement. And obviously that's not true, but that's what I remember from that brief. So I did not invest in the thrift savings plan, Roth IRA, or any of those things, literally until I think 
August or October maybe of last year. So I am 36 years old and I just now started investing and I would love to kick myself every day for the past 18 plus years, I guess, of not doing this. And so when you say, hey, 25 years old, you know, whenever you have the ability to invest for 40 years, $400 will get you to a million million dollars uh, just at a 7%. And with the TSP calculator that we do and the the plans that we, uh, me and uh, a lot of people in my in my office use, we move the money around to the different uh, funds, the C fund, S fund, all those. We move them around really based on you know uh, the strategies that are that are built into TSP calculator, and the average interest or return is about 30, 32, 33 percent. Thinking about even if I drop that down to twenty percent, I would still have so much more money. I would have been a millionaire probably two to three times over if I had known about this, if I had actually thought about it, if I cared about it. It really hurts me now thinking that, I mean, obviously I still have plenty of money today thanks to my wife, but I, I think that maybe the good I could have done for maybe my parents or my loved ones or maybe my kids, the things that I could have done or the things I could be doing for the next few years, now I have to focus on investing for my next career after I retire out of the military and then retirement after that. So hopefully I'll have two maybe government paychecks so retirement won't be as bad. And I know that I'm lucky in that aspect where a lot of people don't have that. It still really hurts me that I didn't get even this advice when I was 18, 19 years old, when I first joined the military. You know, I got there in January of 2003 and that was the first finance briefing we got. And I was I was done. I was like, no, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm, if I'm going to do 20 years, I want to make sure I have all my money. And so this is not the smart way for me. It, it's really disheartening. But I, I have one more question for you. And it revolves around either renting or buying uh, a house. And our airmen, they have, depending on their career field, they have the opportunity to move to a lot of different locations. Um, even yesterday, I was talking to an airman. I asked him if he had a thousand acres of land, just anywhere in the world, where would he go? And he would, he said Montana, even though he's from, oh, I'm sorry, he said Wyoming. He's from uh, Pennsylvania. And he said, you know, the, the area there, although he'd love to be around family, it's not really good for just open wilderness and things like that. And he's really big on going outdoors and hiking and just trekking around the world. Uh, that kind of got me thinking as well today. I am not going to live in the house that I bought in Florida. So we will sell that house in Florida and I will move with my family to some other location. And we bought that house for that type of the equity that we know we needed to do for that long-term goal of financial independence. But some of our airmen, they get the opportunity to move to multiple different locations where they can buy houses or they can rent You know, for the duration that they're either two to maybe even six or seven years, depending on which base they go to and what their job is. They might be able to stay there for a long term. What are the kind of the pros and cons of either purchasing a home versus renting? And is there is there really like a best time to purchase a home or do you even need to purchase a home? That is a really good question. Um, and actually, I've heard this many times before because like, let's say 20, 30 years ago, there it seemed like there was definitely this push toward purchasing homes, right? Like you want to purchase a home because that means you're going to be financially successful. And you know, to be honest, I think with a modern period, I really don't think that in order to be successful, financially speaking, that you need to purchase a home. Home ownership is wonderful if you are ready for it. 
And that means if you're emotionally ready for it and if you're financially ready for it. Um, but you don't necessarily have to be a homeowner. And I'm going to explain this, uh, first of all, in a mathematical way. So mathematically speaking, typically, you know, I mean, if you purchase a home, you have there's the upfront cost of a down payment where the typical recommendation is maintaining about a 20 percent down payment of the value of your home. Uh, then there's obviously the inspection fees. Then there is, you know, the closing fees. There's the realtor fee. There, there's just so much that goes into actually purchasing a house and not even to mention the maintenance of a house, right? Now, if you have a lawn, you're responsible for the lawn, you're responsible for the roof and roofs can be expensive. I have a roof expense coming up and that's probably going to be $15,000. It's a lot. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, right? So on one hand, it makes sense if, if you want to buy a house, if you're going to stay in this house for about five years, and that's typically the break even. So if you know you love the area where you are in, you don't really plan on moving, you absolutely love the people, you have a stable job, right? You don't plan on losing your job anytime soon, then purchasing a house might actually be the right decision for you. And at that time, when I was you know, in the market looking for a house, at 23, I, I had a great job. I knew I wanted to stay in the area where I am. I love the sun, right? It was just perfect for me. Everything just really fell into place. And on top of that, I was able to negotiate the price of my, my house down a little bit so I could do this 20% down payment. And it worked out for me. But if it didn't work out, I was willing to walk away. And I think that's one of the first things as you look for a house, you, know, you, you got to be willing to walk away from a potential home purchase. If it doesn't match your financial goals, and if you feel like you will be stretching your budget down the road, then walk away from it. There's going to be many other houses out there and many other opportunities. Now, again, if you think that you're going to be in this area only for three or four years, even five years, chances are, at least financially speaking, the investment is probably not worth it to actually make you money down the road. Unless, of course, you're in a highly developing area, you see there's schools, better schools coming in. Okay, maybe it will be worth it because of appreciation. But I wouldn't really base my purchase on the appreciation assumptions around the area where I'm living. So in that case, renting might actually be a good idea. And renting, you know, it comes with many different pros or cons. So, for example... If you rent a place, you're not responsible for making any repair payments, right? Like if I rented this house or if I had an apartment where I rented, I wouldn't have to pay a $15,000 roof replacement. I would have really low upfront costs. I wouldn't have to pay a 20% down payment. I wouldn't really have to worry about the yard. I, there's so many things where I wouldn't have to worry about. Plus, I could also simply pick up my stuff and move to another location if I wanted. I, you know, I'm very, very flexible that way if I were to rent. So I think that's one of the huge pros out there for renting. You, you can be very, very flexible, unlike a house. The disadvantage, though, of renting an apartment or even a house, it depends on your personality. I think if you really want to build equity in something, then obviously a house might be the path for you. Because if you rent a place, you can't build equity. Renting will not help increase your credit score. That's another big thing. Monthly rent payments could increase. If you purchase a house, on the other hand, and let's say you obtain a 30-year fixed mortgage, right? The keyword there is fixed. Your payments are not going to increase. 
at least not your principal and interest payments. Your property taxes might increase, but not your principal and interest. So those will stay fixed for the duration of the loan. Uh, on the other hand, if you rent a place, yeah, chances are it's going to increase at one point or another. And you unfortunately do not have control over that. So that's a very big con in my book. You can also not make changes to the property if you rent a place. And I, you know, me personally, I love customizing my house. I love, you know, painting. I feel like I paint the walls like a different color every year, you know? <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of customization that goes on. And I like that because it kind of reflects my unique personality. With a rental property, on the other hand, you typically cannot make those changes. You can't add a porch or a veranda or whatever it is because that's going to be considered a breach of contract. Or if you do, then that's going to cost you extra once you move out so the owners can make whatever they have to do to uh, cover up what you did. Um, another con could be, you know, landlords usually don't make cosmetic upgrades. Uh, so the home might actually feel dated. So you might not get, you know, the newest refrigerator and you might not be able to replace that refrigerator unless you get the consent of your landlord. So I think those are some of the pros and cons of renting. But what about buying? So there's definitely a couple of pros when it comes to buying a place, right? So I think one of the first things is privacy because I, I'm a pretty private person. I don't like having my neighbors above me or right next to me. And I really don't want to hear every time they listen to music in the morning or at night. And I've had that experience because I lived in a place where my neighbors were extremely loud. And that was another reason why I decided to go for a home because it's private. It's just me and I'm a quiet person. So it really suits me well. The second thing is the appreciation. Obviously, if you live in an area that's potentially up and coming or where you feel it's safe or schools are really good around you, there's always that potential for an increase in value. Um, but then there's also the potential that your home value might decrease. And there's nothing you can do about it because you're stuck to the area, right? So that's kind of a double-edged sword right there. The other pro, I think, is just pride, right? You can say you own a house through your hard work. Not that many people can say that. So I think that also relates like, to a portion of pride. Obviously, you can you know, customize and renovate the house. So that's kind of a pro. You can make that to your you know, unique personality. The interest paid on a mortgage can be tax deductible um, if you meet specific requirements there. A mortgage is also you know, it's not really more than renting. Actually, when I think about it, I rented a small place here where I live downtown, and it costs me more than my mortgage. So I had literally a 500 square foot apartment downtown and that's 500 square foot apartment costs more than my house. And my house is probably four to five times larger than that apartment. So, you know, and I pay much, much less for that. Another great pro to home ownership is again, you build up equity. So it helps you save money and it helps you if you plan to keep this house for 30 years or so. It's basically something you own, right? Because you worked for that and you paid it off down the road. But there are obviously also cons with home ownership. And, and like I said before, the upfront costs, I think that's the number one con just because it's so staggeringly expensive. And then there are obviously the extra costs, repairs, taxes, insurance, homeowners insurance. My goodness, that is so expensive. And then it's also, it's a lot more difficult to move, right? If you've had it in the location where you are and you just want to go, you can't because you have to prepare your home. You have to find a realtor. It typically takes 30 to 60 days to 
finish a contract, find someone to get your house, actually to pay for your house, and then move to another location. And then for me, at least personally, the landscape maintenance is a huge drawback. I mean, I love my yard, but I have to maintain it every single week. Because like you said, I live in Florida and we get so much rain and sun that I feel like I'm out there tending to my yard every single week. And it's, it's a time suck. But, you know, I think in the end, if you're really between buying or renting a place, you really have to think about what works for your personality. Are you ready to settle and are you ready to stay in a specific location for a longer period of time? Or do you think that, you know, in five years or so, you're going to go ahead and you're moving to another place? And I think both options are completely fine. But mathematically speaking, it really only makes sense to purchase a house if you're going to stay in it for five years or later. Um, so that's at least the mathematics of it. Emotionally, you know, you have to figure that out. Obviously, are you ready for a home purchase? But I think both, you know, renting or buying are wonderful ways to, you know, start a life somewhere. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I do know that with the military, a majority of our places, a majority of the bases that we go to or assignments that we get, because they are attached to a military location, they tend to have the areas surrounding them higher turnover rate. So it's kind of, it's not as difficult in my mind to purchase and sell property for that aspect. However, depending on where you're at, Appreciation and depreciation are, are huge things. I know in San Angelo, Texas, when I was there, I knew that we had just literally bought a house before going to Texas in Florida. So we weren't going to buy a house in Texas as well. Although if we did, during the four years that I was there, apparently due to fracking or I, I don't know what they, what they do in, in West Texas, but there was a huge find of oil, of crude oil, so everything in in the area skyrocketed. You had every hotel room was now $300 a night. Every house automatically tripled in price. So everyone who had a house there was just like, yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's horrible for the environment. I don't, I don't know what fracking does. But still, like everyone who had a house there made so much money as they left and Obviously, it was a missed opportunity, but like you said on a couple of occasions now, we don't have crystal balls. So there's no way that uh, we would know that the fracking or you know the oil booms or it collapses and be like, hey, we, we made a mistake. The three billion barrels of oil that we thought we had actually was only it was only one. And now the jobs have all dried up and everyone goes home. So and that kind of did happen while we we're there as well. But uh, then they found more or something. I don't know. I want to thank you. For coming on the show and I want to make sure that everyone has the same opportunity to reach out and talk to you and look at your all the content that you post on uh, I believe it was Pinterest I don't know how many walls you have of content on there that I'll link to blog posts and things like that whereas a, a lot of the information that I didn't understand at first obviously until I, until I read the blog but I want to make sure that all of your content or all of your you know communication efforts are out there. So where can people find you digitally? Definitely. So one of the first places is my blog, themillennialmoneywoman.com. There is also a contact me tab and you can always reach out to me at themillennialmoneywoman at gmail.com. I'm very happy to answer any questions or simply just say hi. Um, so don't be afraid to reach out to me. 
The second place, if you're a Pinterest fan, like, like Derek said, search the Millennial Money Woman. And then if you're more of a Twitter user, you can always find me using the handle at the underscore MMW. And I'm always happy to reach out and uh, hopefully be of help. Thank you very much. So Fiona, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, I hope maybe if, depending on the response from this, if there's more questions that come up, then I'll definitely reach out and maybe we can have another conversation. I would love that, Derek. That would be my honor. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. So some key takeaways from our discussion, probably one of the most important is to invest as early as possible. Don't be average with your savings. If at all possible, double the amount you can put into savings so that you can double the benefits in the long term. And always remember, savings, investing, and personal finance is a long-term event. Short-term losses and gains will pale in comparison after 40 years of investments. If you have any ideas, recommendations for future podcast shows, or guests that you'd like to hear from, let us know by going to any of the socially acceptable means of communication and leave us a comment. Facebook URL is facebook.com forward slash group forward slash 692D podcast. The email is simply 692D podcast at gmail.com. And you can always leave us a message on the Mattermost channel. If you can't get to any of those, send me an email at derek.addison at us.af.mil, and I'll respond as soon as possible. That's the show for today. So for now, aloha, take care of yourself. And if you can, take care of someone else too.